Life is hard. Life with chronic, critical, and complex health concerns is even harder. We all know someone who is struggling with health issues or disability. It might even be you. And in the pain and suffering, we wonder if it's possible to move from surviving to thriving. We struggle to hope, struggle to persevere, struggle to trust that God knows what He's doing. But in the struggle, there is real hope, and it's possible to be rooted and ready to weather the storm. Welcome to the Bluestem Project Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to the Bluestem Project Podcast. It's good to be here with you, and it's my sincere hope that by listening, you're better equipped and encouraged for the journey of suffering, hardship, and trial that comes with health issues and disability. And it's my prayer that you're drawn closer to God and really deeper in His Son, Jesus Christ. I have a beautiful view in front of me as I podcast to you. I'm sitting at a friend's cabin on a lake, and my son Brody is out fishing off the dock, and I can see the dock at the moment. He's actually taking a break from fishing to catch frogs in the grass because they are everywhere. Uh, But yeah, this is a pretty serene and beautiful place, and I'm glad to be here talking to you from this place. And I want to continue on in our series of Considering Jesus, looking at Hebrews 12:3, which says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I'm putting forth to you the very firm belief that considering by way of comparison with ourselves and by deep contemplation the hostility and hardship that Jesus faced, that it's a remedy for our weariness and faint-heartedness. And those of us experiencing medical hardship and disability have been frequent visitors to a dry and weary land. Perhaps you could say that you've racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles going back and forth to said place. And as I mentioned, fixing our eyes on Jesus is an amazing remedy to the weariness and faint-heartedness that we experience. In the previous episode, we discussed the hostility Jesus faced from the commoner or the everyday people of his day. And I pointed out that people of all walks of life could either love or hate Jesus. His dividing line was not by socioeconomic status or wealth or occupation or ethnicity or other categories that we often use to delineate between different types of people, but rather it went straight through the human heart. And John 3, 19 to 21 explains why this is. And it says, the light has come into the world, talking about Jesus as the light, The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. As a result of humanity's heart, Jesus experienced what the prophet Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier when he said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And yet Jesus endured all this injustice, all this utter nonsense, really, all this hostility from sinful people, because his mission was not to be served, but to serve. He came to seek and save the lost. He said he came to give his life as a ransom for many, to die for you and me, to provide a way to eternal life. For he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we saw in the previous episode that the commoner became hostile towards Jesus because he broke some of their traditions. They didn't accept his divine identity and instead accused him of having a demon or being suicidally mad. They became hostile when he told them hard truth. They became hostile 
when his merciful nature caused the simultaneous events of freedom from a, for a man who was demon-possessed and at the same time the destruction of livestock and property. They became hostile toward him for freeing a man and causing the destruction of their property. And then we also saw at the end that some commoners showed literally no mercy, that while Jesus was suffering crucifixion, they mocked him in the middle of it. And today we're going to jump into looking at how both Jesus' hometown and his family were hostile towards him. And I want to start first with his hometown. We'll look at one passage there, and then we'll look at two instances where his family was hostile to him. So his hometown, we're going to look at Luke 4, 16 to 30, and his rejection in Nazareth. So Jesus grew up right in this small town of Nazareth, likely the population of his day of the town in his day was probably like four to five hundred his earthly father uh, joseph was a carpenter and jesus too did carpentry work and so he would have been known as such to the people of nazareth presumably he'd fixed some of their houses built some of their furniture but let me read from luke 4 and i'll unpack a few things as we go so it says this and he came to nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and, scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Let me say this. Jesus did not have to open the scroll to read. He, he knows what's in there. And he knows what he's going to read. So why does he even read it? I would say this. He's making a powerful connection between himself and the Holy Scriptures that these people believe are direct communication from God. They, they have that right. They believe these are from God. It's without error. It's direct communication from him. They understand that. And so when Jesus connects himself to it, it really is saying something pretty profound to these people who have a deep trust in the authority and reliability of the scriptures. You you could say that they are well anchored and firmly planted in them in, in a real sense. And these words from God are not only true to these people, they believe they're sacred. And it orients and defines everything for these Jewish people of God. Now, at times, what the problem was is that while they believed these were words from God and they had great authority and reliability, they didn't always interpret it right. And you see this pretty constantly in how they view Jesus. They get wrong a, a number of the prophecies about him and what he will be like and what he will do. And that causes or instigates a lot of their behavior towards him. So let me continue on. This is verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is very clear in choosing to read this passage and declare it fulfilled. The declaration is basically this. I am the one who fulfills this. I'm the Messiah. And the initial response to the people is positive in a sense, because it says in verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's 
son. So at first, they speak well of him, and they comment on his graciousness, which is really ultimately a comment on his ability. He, he speaks graciously. He acts graciously. It's not a comment on his identity, because right after they say, they, or it says that they marveled at his gracious words, they said, is not this Joseph's son? So when it comes to his identity, which is what Jesus is really showing them, I'm, I'm the fulfillment of this passage, they can't, they, they can't see him accurately, or they don't see him accurately. They only see earthly connections, Joseph's son. And Jesus was born, right, of a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph is his earthly father, but not his biological father. But they only really see him as Joseph's son. And so in other words, they're wondering, how can this mere man who we've known, whose father we know, be a fulfillment of a central prophecy from God in the sacred scriptures we trust? They can't deny his ability, his gracious words, but they do deny his identity as Messiah. It's, it's completely implausible to them. So let me continue on. Verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So Jesus, realizing their skepticism, exposes to them the current state of their hearts. They do not believe, and they want miraculous signs of some sort to prove himself. And they've heard, through the grapevine, of his miraculous uh, dealings in and around the city of Capernaum, and want, or I guess you could say, probably rather demand, that it be done before them. And his response is not to perform miracles as though he's like a cosmic vending machine for these people, but rather to indict them by saying, you know, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then next he gives them examples from their recorded histories in the scriptures that they revere that show this to be true. So this is verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and their ministries were rejected by God's people. And when they did so, God sent them to others, uh, non-Jews. And Jesus is making a parallel. He's saying, like Elijah and Elisha, I too am sent from God. And just as they were rejected, your rejection of me fits the pattern. So God sent them to pagan Gentiles, non-Jews. And Jesus is saying, in effect, either accept me as Messiah or I'll go bring God's salvation elsewhere. Friend, God is making his salvation known to you in the person of Jesus through the feeble efforts of this podcast and by other means. How are you going to respond? Here's how the people of Jesus' hometown respond. It says this in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They are in unity in their response. They have this violent animosity towards him. They're filled with wrath. They drive him out and take him to the brow of a hill. 
So Nazareth, even today, is enclosed on three sides by more elevated portions of the mountain um, hill that the city is set in. And they take him to one of these peaks to throw him down. And make no mistake, this is an attempt to kill him. So early rabbinic documents, known as the Mishnah, recorded in the late 2nd and 3rd century, advised that the proper way to stone someone to death was to throw them down a hill. So they want him dead. And they want him, this is interesting, they want him dead so badly that they're willing to break Roman law to do so. In other words, right, they're under the Roman Empire, and only the Roman government officials had the authority to carry out death sentences. So they hate Jesus so much for claiming to be the Messiah and exposing their unbelief that in mob fashion against the governing laws of the land, they attempt to kill him. And Jesus, we are told how, perhaps with the use of some divine power, he escapes. I'm thinking about this like you and I have experienced rejection. I don't know you deeply, but I'm guessing not at this level where your hometown is trying to kill you. And I want you to think about this for a second again. And I keep coming back to this. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he even on earth? Why is he going through all this hostility? It's because he came to serve, not be served. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. In an extremely costly manner, he's going to be crucified and he's going to have the wrath of God upon him for the sins of the world. He did it to die for you and me and provide a way to eternal life. So Jesus is rejected with violent animosity by his hometown. Essentially, they're saying, you're not who you say you are. We're going to kill you. But is it much better? Let me ask this. Do you think it's much better within his own family? How did they respond to him? And we're going to look at two quick passages. One is in Mark, and I want to read verses or from Mark chapter 3, 13 to 15, and then uh, verses 20 and 21. It says this, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then verses 16 to 19 lists who they are. I'm going to skip over that for the sake of time. But then in verse 20, it says this, Then he went home, which is at this point for him likely Capernaum, not Nazareth, and a crowd gathered there so that they could not even eat. And it says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So you and I have likely not experienced our entire hometowns trying to kill you, but you may have experienced your family thinking you're out of your mind. And if we're being honest with ourselves, maybe at some times we actually were. I can think of my youth and, and go through, oh my goodness, I, I really did some pretty foolish things that drove my parents mad. Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I know I don't even know half of it because I don't remember, but you probably remember a lot of it. I'm sorry. And even if we're not like totally out of our minds, certainly we've been wrong in thought and deed on many occasions. But Jesus, more than anyone who's ever lived, was in his right mind. He's, he's the only person you could say was always in his right mind. He didn't have a fallen, rational mind. And the text says that his family, they went out to seize him. And elsewhere in the book of Mark, this term was used to describe the arrest of someone. So his family went, likely from Nazareth to Capernaum, to seize Jesus, which is akin to really taking charge of him, kind of arresting him, because they believe he's out of his mind. They believe he's out of control, he's out of his mind, he's taken these 12 disciples, and now they're, they're following him. They don't have a, 
a real place to live. They're going around doing all this ministry. It looks, quite frankly, bizarre to some degree. And I imagine some of it has to do with unbelief about who he really is. Because in a different passage that we'll look at in a second, it says for even for not even his own brothers believed in him. So they're going to go talk some sense in him. And Nazareth to Capernaum is probably about 20 miles. I was looking at Google Maps and it says it's about an hour drive. Uh, but they are walking. I don't know when the last time you walked 20 miles is. And I don't know if I ever have. At one point, I trained for a marathon and did a 19-mile training run. And that seems like half a lifetime ago that I was capable of doing that. And that was pretty brutal. So they, they are going way out of their way. They're so convinced Jesus is out of his mind that they're willing to go do a 40-mile round trip to go get him. And I want to stop for a second and highlight how how we can perceive this would kind of pile on Jesus. He already has real opponents. In other words, at the beginning of Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, after he's healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the Pharisees and the Herodians are meeting together to plan how to destroy him. And his family has now walked 20 miles to go grab him and talk some sense into him and take him under their care. I don't know about you, but when under pressure from people, if, if someone was trying and wanting to destroy me, I would really hope my family would be a place of comfort and support. Not in the sense that they kind of agree that you're, you're crazy and you're out of your mind. And again, let me come back to this. Why is Jesus going through all of this for you and for me to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to provide a way to eternal life? Because he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So understanding this showdown with his family helps us better grasp what's going on in another passage where Jesus' brothers express unbelief in him. And this is in John Chapter 7, 5 to 6. I'll read it to you and make a couple comments. It says this, After this, so what had happened previously is Jesus had given a hard teaching, and many of his, of his disciples, not including the twelve, but he had disciples beyond the twelve, had turned back from following him because it was a hard teaching. So after this event, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, and it, we're talking about his biological brothers, and it's possibly his brothers and sisters, uh, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And he did later, uh, the passage says, he did later go up to the feast. So this occurs after the, the previous story that we just looked at in Mark chapter 3. And so his brothers have already once gone out of their way to talk some sense into him. They think he's out of his mind. And going up to the Feast of Booths was one of the three principal Jewish feasts. It was a celebration of remembrance for God's guidance and provision in Israel's history when they wandered in the wilderness between their exodus from Egypt 
and settling in the promised man land. And it was a fall celebration of the harvest and God instituted it and they were supposed to go up. And in looking at like, what is their motivation to say what they did? It may be that the loss of disciples that he experienced prior is their motivation. In other words, they could be saying, hey, go up, do miracles, prove yourself, you know, go get your disciples back if you're really who you say you are. It's also known by the Jews that a man claiming to be the Messiah must show his works in Judea and in the holy city, Jerusalem, not just kind of out in the boonies of Galilee. So they're stating, well, if you really say who you are, why don't you just, you know, you need to, you need to go show who you are in that area. But I want to point this out, that it really seems like his brothers do not care about his well-being. Because verse 1 says they, that he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And what his brothers are saying, they're telling him to go into murderous country to prove himself, okay? But they don't believe he has the ability to because the text says that they didn't, not even his own brothers believed in him. So they're saying, go into hostile territory to prove yourself. And by the way, we don't believe you actually can. Like that is a hostility. That is a family hostility that is hard for us to imagine. Let me bring us back once again to Hebrews 12.3, which says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And why is Jesus going through this? Not to be served, but to serve, to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to die for you and me, to provide a way to eternal life. For as he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bluestem Project. It's been a pleasure having you. The Bluestem Project exists to equip and encourage you in the suffering, hardships, and trials of life that come with health issues and disability. We do this by helping root you in Christ and by giving you the tools you need to be ready for life's greatest obstacles. It'd be an honor to take this journey with you. Please do hit the subscribe button and tell a friend or family member experiencing health issues and medical disability about the Bluestem Project. Music